Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. The word authentic comes from ancient Greek. It is the composite of two words, authos, which means the self, and entos, which means inside. So authentic really means the inside self or the true self. So if you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our show, we talk to leaders who went through the process of clearly understanding their true selves and articulating their core values. These leaders make decisions and take actions that are always consistent with those values. Our guests take us through their journey of self-discovery, share their successes, and are candid about their challenges. And because authentic leadership requires engaging your whole self, we also talked about how their personal passions intersect with and support their professional life. Our guest today is Dave Edelman. Dave just finished her run as CMO of Aetna. He has been a partner at a couple of top consulting firms and a key member of the team that built Digitas into a major digital agency. He's also a marketing visionary, author of two seminal articles that established two foundational trends in marketing. In 1989, he wrote Segment of One, and in 2010, he wrote Branding in the Digital Age, the article that marked, among other things, the shift from the customer funnel to the customer journey. On a personal note, Dave is also somebody who had tremendous influence for me at the beginning of my career. So our conversation starts with me sharing the key lessons that I learned from him. From there, we cover a lot of ground. Dave talks about his passion for musical theater and how that shaped his personality and leadership style. Specifically, the idea that he always wants to bring energy to the room. He also shares how he adapted to more traditional business environments without sacrificing his core traits. We then talked about the adjustment that he had to make going from an environment like a traditional blue chip consulting firm to managing a team of 200 people from different backgrounds and functional skills. And in a particularly vulnerable moment, David talks about a big health scare he had and how that experience impacted the way he now relates to his teams. As usual, we close the episode by talking about cliches and business expressions that drive Dave crazy. One quick administrative thing before we get to the episode. You may recall at the end of the last episode, I promised a copy of Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data by Rishat Tobakawala to my favorite Apple podcast review. So this goes to Sonia C. Sonia C, email me at dino at al4ep.com with your contact information. I will send you a copy of the book. Thank you. David is uh, somebody who had tremendous influence in my career. I'm going to let him tell you what he has done professionally, but I reported to David in my experience at Digitas, and I learned three things from David. The first one There are a lot of senior people that when you're writing presentation or doing work for them, they say that they want you to bring the work while it's in process to have the influence. And then they will say, you know, they will react to it as if it's not client ready. And most importantly, they feel the need to give feedback just to prove they're the senior person. My experience with David was always I would show up with him to him with a piece of work and i would get three comments only but those three comments added a tremendous amount of value the second thing and this is something that i took with me in my uh, career when i was in services in agencies and when i was leading practices it's really important in services to sell a combination of work that you already have the capability to do but also work that allows the company to build new capabilities 
And so in the cell processing services, you're, there's always this dance where sometimes you see a senior person selling something and you're like, we have no ability to sell this and they're pushing too much or they're being too conservative. And every time I've been in pitches with David, I was always amazed at his ability to find that exact point of balance where he would promise a client that something that at that specific point in time, maybe we wouldn't be able to deliver, but we would have enough time to build the capability to deliver it and always keep up the promises. And then the third thing, and this is a funny thing. I remember I had, I was putting a presentation together and I said, you know, we have two things. And then he said, just put the third thing. because you always need three things in your slides. <laughs> but the third thing that, I learned from David is how important it is to always make your team shine. And there are two elements, two, two, two episodes that I remember. The first one, um, when I was very young and overeager, I remember him taking me aside and saying, Dino, you know, I know that sometimes you feel you're the smartest guy in the room and sometimes you are, and I know, but not everybody else in the room knows, you know, you're going to get a lot more if you actually let people present their ideas and have them implemented, even if you had that same idea before. And then I will also remember we were on the train to New York City uh, for a meeting with an investment bank. And it was David, me, and a creative person. And I was a little disheveled. My hair was all over the place. And uh, the creative person had a suit. And David, David said, no, no, no. You need to take your tie off because you are the creative person and they want to see a creative person. And Dino, you're the business person, comb your hair. And so it was really an important lesson in the, the, the importance of not just delivering the work with the right capabilities, but communicating the capabilities and how communicating them correctly can actually help you be successful with the client. So David, I, you have no idea how many times I've told these stories to my teams um, as I was coaching them and how many times you've been present with me in this past 15 years when I was selling work to clients. So thank you so much for the impact that you've had in my career. And so I, I couldn't think of anyone better to talk about leadership um, to our clients. So. Well, well, thank you, Dino. I'm, I am flattered. I, I'm honored that I was able to have that kind of impact. It just seems to come naturally. Um, it's just who I am, but uh, it's, it's terrific to hear that. So thank you as well. And I'm delighted to be here. Uh, this is great. Why don't you give like a quick background? You know, your last engagement was a CMO of Aetna, where actually I think you led a number of programs that were pretty unique for the healthcare industry. But you also have a, a long career behind in services. You want to share a little bit of your background with our for our listeners? Sure. I'll actually work backwards. So as Dino said, just until a few months ago, uh, for four years, I had been the chief marketing officer at Aetna. Uh, this was my first client side role. Before that, I had always been in client service. And I had been brought into Aetna as the first chief marketing officer in order to take a company that really didn't have much in the way of marketing capabilities and raise the game of how marketing can provide new kinds of insight at the leadership table about 
consumers to build a brand and build trust for the company, put more digital capabilities in place, and to change the pace and direction of the talent who had been labeled as doing marketing, but really hadn't had a clear understanding of what strategic marketing was going to be about. Uh, so I can come back to more of what, what happened um, at Aetna. It was, a, it was great. We did a, a ton of changes and then more started happening after we were acquired by CVS. Um, before Aetna, and probably one of the reasons I was asked to join Aetna, I built the digital marketing strategy team at McKinsey uh, for several years, working with large enterprise companies on how digital would really change the way they operate, um, not just marketing, but even more broadly, how to think about creating centers of excellence around digital capabilities, thinking about mundane issues that are actually really important, like funding flow, how you think about incentive metrics, how the leadership team should be tapping into what's going on and the relationship between the person leading digital transformation and the rest of the leadership team. Uh, and so we worked with several companies um, such as Chase, Verizon, McDonald's, some foreign companies um, on pretty significant transformation efforts. Before that, I worked with Dino. Uh, we were together uh, helping to build what became Digitas. Uh, one of the top interactive agencies was there starting in 99 when things were really starting to take off from an online perspective. It was just a fantastic place right at the rock face of where digital was happening. I think we all learned a ton about what it took to actually get websites and programs and frankly, basic digital thinking going in companies in the early days. It was a tremendous team. I ended up hiring a lot of folks from Digitas later in my career, uh, and we had quite an impact in the day. And then before that, I started my career with the Boston Consulting Group, another consultancy where just coming right out of business school, I immediately was thrust into situations where clients had questions about marketing and information technology, believe it or not, before the internet. The internet had not existed yet. And actually in, in 1989, I wrote an article called Segment of One Marketing um, that started to lay out the manifesto of what a lot has happened uh, and that was just right in the early days um, as things were on the edge of all coming together. Yeah. And uh, just speaking of articles, I think he, Dave also wrote a seminal article. Uh, was it like 2008, 2009, about the end of? In 2010 for the uh, Harvard Business Review, um, that article um, branding in the digital age introduced the concept of the consumer decision journey. And instead of the funnel, thinking about the circular journey and all the steps now involved, given digital channels that consumers take, or customers, they don't have to be consumers, it could be B2B, um, and thinking about things, for example, like advocacy as part of that. And how are you building your advocate base? How are you informing people with content along the way? So that became uh, something that proved highly valuable to a number of companies who I worked with in helping to implement that. This is a great background. Um, and thinking about the topics of the podcast, what is authenticity to you? And in your career journey, how did you start figuring out who you were and how you wanted to 
present yourself? I think authenticity is when your natural, passionate energies come out in your interactions. It's really you. It's what's driving you. And in my case, what I, I realized actually very early in life um, that music was something that was a real big passion. I know it is for you too, Dino, but I, as a kid, I was involved in musical theater. I always found a passion in working with others to make something happen, bringing creativity to the fore, respecting others' capabilities, getting pushed as you get creative. And so in business, that whole mindset of working with others to create something really was my passion. It still is. Uh, it's what turns me on. It's what energizes me. And I think authenticity is when those kind of inner drivers are what you show and what you bring to the party and what other people feel about you, uh, as opposed to stifling that, trying to be something you're not, you've, you've got to let your drive come out. You spend a good portion of your career in institutions where that is not necessarily always encouraged or so how did you navigate that? You know, it's a good question. Um, it was just simply who I was. You know, for example, I found it very hard to wear suits and ties, except for, you know, in those right places, Dino, as you mentioned earlier. Um, but I, still, in terms of style, I just felt that the people are humans. People are people. You don't have to have a facade. And in the kinds of businesses, client service businesses, you have to build a relationship, a relationship that's personal, that's also based on trust, where people are willing to authentically see you as somebody they can talk to. And there's just no way you can do that if you're faking it. You just can't. So you've got to let your style come out. And, you know, it's funny, another um discussion I had with someone talked about what do you hope people recognize when you come into a room? And I said, I like to bring oxygen into the room. Uh, I like to bring more energy in. And that's just who I am. I want to get the discussion going. I want, I'll proceed some of it, but I want it from others too. I want the energy level to go up. Uh, and that's just, uh, I think, it served me well because I was successful doing it, even in some cultures where it wasn't necessarily the norm. So in, in the process of forming leadership, there's, you know, there's what comes natural to you. And then as you move through your career, there is a point where you need to get intentional to sort of articulate who you are as a leader, how you want to present. What are some moments in your career where you started sort of going from the natural to the realizing what your leadership style was? Yeah, there were two things that I'll, um, I'll talk about. So one was fairly early in my career. I was at BCG and there I had written this article on segment of one marketing and the natural next thing was to market it, um, get publicity for it. Well, that meant 
getting on stage, um, becoming a salesperson for the idea, for BCG, for myself, all of the above. That was something new. <laughs> Normally, when I was on stage, I was performing. It was, you know, from theater. It, it was, you know, mostly scripted and very clear and rehearsed. And here I was going to have to really get up there and do something that really stretched what I was trying to convey to the audience. And so I had to be very deliberate about it. Uh, I had to think carefully about the way I used words, the kinds of stories I told. I d deliberately didn't want to come across as self-serving sales. But what I did want to come across was, here's a set of ways of thinking about the world. They have a credibility to them. And here's some examples to that. And there's a way of taking that view of the world and turning it into opportunity and here are some stories about that and leaving it there and not necessarily going, you know, for the hard pitch, but being very deliberate, especially in how I use stories to convey something to the audience. And so that was that was very deliberate. And it was a moment where I, I had to think through what I was trying to do with my audience. And then I think that the second one was. Um, as we started building Digitas, it was my first time where I was getting a growing cadre of people on my team. I was building a strategy and analytics team. Um, it was growing in numbers, and it was the first time where I was becoming a leader of a large growing group. Um, and that required more than just simply working with a small team where I had before just hands-on team. I still had that, but I had to also think about how I mobilized a broader group to get a sense of purpose, to feel energized about our mission. And so I had to deliberately bring energy to higher level things than the specific project at hand and had to provide oxygen, not just in the room, but oxygen in terms of just in general, the job opportunity that people were now taking on more broadly. Uh, and so I had to think about you know, the way I wanted to do that. Again, the kind of language and settings, you know, one of the things I did, which was for the first time was actually getting um, every six months, get the whole crew together, eventually grew to 200 people, um, where we'd get together and people would have an opportunity to show their work. We would even do speed dating for people to get to know each other and create a lot of different fun ways for people to engage and get a sense of the bigger whole. Um, and that was deliberate. But it was still from the notion, you know, of bringing oxygen, bringing energy, bringing passion bring my own into the room and trying to get others to feel it too. So actually it's interesting that you're talking about building the team at Digitus because um, one of the topics that I'm interested in is the idea that uh, it's very easy to say we want to build teams with talent and you know, we only want A-type personalities and super talented people. But um in a world where talent has become the scarcer resource, um, the ability to actually engage with a team, a very different group of people, 
is something that can make a difference. And, you know, you had to make the transition from going from an environment like the BCG environment where, uh, you know, to a certain extent, people are very similar. They have followed fairly similar paths to being a consultant or a manager. They've come from, you know, 20 colleges in America and 10 business school, you know, and, and three companies to a, a place like Digitas where even though you were only you were running the strategy team, you were actually interacting with uh, people from completely different skill set, technology people, creative people, you know, account people and uh, and people come from a much broader background than what you would find in a top consulting firm. How did you think how did you navigate the change and what are some of the things that helped you being successful in a different environment? It's a great question, Dino, and it was it was challenging. When I first joined Digitas, you know, my first six months or so, I was dealing with an amazing diversity of people, um, not just in the typical dimensions of race, gender. You know, it was diversity of experience, of skills, of just even language, the way people used words um, was different, terminology was different. And for the first six months, really understanding what people were trying to tell me, understanding what they needed, where I was doing things that were running counter to them. And I'll give you just a really good example. The technology team um, always felt that they were last, that we would come up with a strategy, a creative design, everything, and then we toss it over to the technology team and said, you got to build this. And time had ticked away and their time would be more compressed. And they didn't like that. Um, and so I found myself naturally at the beginning falling into that based on assumptions and kind of what I saw around me. But it was really important to me to understand where they were coming from. Um, and I felt okay, every time I talk to them, I learn something. Okay, this is stuff I don't know. And there's absolutely no way I'm going to be successful if I stay in my bubble. Plus, I'm curious. I'm just naturally curious. I want to understand what they do. I think if I understand their mindsets, it'll make me better. It'll make them better. We'll create a better product all around. So I did invest time, lunches, um, traveling on the road with, with folks, just asking a ton of questions. Um, one of the primary things that I always keep in mind is before you show your own expertise, you've got to diagnose the situation around you. You've got to ask questions. You've got to investigate. you got to understand because what right do you have to say anything until you understand the context you're in? So... I did. I asked lots of questions and tried to figure out what I could do better to help them and really create a tighter team across the board. Um, it paid off. I built amazing relationships over the years there. Uh, but it was it was a hard slap in the face at the beginning because there was such a difference in people um, and then the key was to take that and say, this is a learning opportunity. This is, you know, this is stuff I don't know. Um, so I better start to connect with them 
they seem very talented in what they do. And of course, the more I got to know folks, just the more we clicked and the more we were able to do together. As somebody who has built a lot of teams, what are some of the leadership traits that you look for in people that you bring on your teams? One of the biggest is humility. Um, so you've got to be willing to listen. Um, you've got to ask questions, as I, just building on what I said before. You've got to ask questions, really listen carefully, not dominate the discussion, have good questions, which show that you're listening, but then turn things around into motivating guidance. Um, as opposed to just expertise, you've got to turn it around to get people, again, it comes back to passion, comes back to oxygen. You've got to use your insight and expertise to get people interested and motivated to move forward in the path you just ultimately as a leader, you are going to be the one who has to decide as much as you may want to think you can create consensus and stuff. Ultimately, in the vast number of situations, there is a decision that just simply has to be made. And if you as a leader don't make that decision, people are lost. They feel they're at cross purposes. They don't necessarily understand what their priorities are. So you do have to get there. But you have to get there by listening, by asking questions, get the data, then make it clear what your position is, and then turn that into something that you can provide, you can generate energy out of. Um, I think those are the things. You've got to be curious and inquisitive. Um, and then the last thing is you also have to think a few steps ahead. The other thing about a leader is you've got to have a sense of what's going to be around the corner. And not just, it's important to be in the moment and understand what's happening in the moment. But you do have to think about two steps forward. If we do this, let's play this out. Sometimes you have to do that in your own head And you're rattling around in that. And then once you come up with that, you got to make that transparent and put it on the table. But you do, a really good leader has to have that sense of implications. Um, and what's the second order effect of, of if we do that? Uh, because teams don't want to get blindsided later. They want to know that they're being led down a path where they can all walk. That is fabulous. Changing course a little bit. Uh, what is a personal crisis or, you know, a difficult moment in your career and how has that impacted your approach to leadership and to guiding people? Yeah. Well, um, about 15 years ago, Dino, and I think it was when I was working with you, my appendix broke, burst. Um, it was really serious. I was in intensive care for five days. Wasn't necessarily clear I'd get out. Um, but I did. I was very fortunate. I had tremendous medical care, but it was scary. Um, and coming out of that, I was very scared about the rest of my life and my career. And I had some, I, I had some surgery that was going to challenge me. It has since I've really become comfortable with it now, but it was a lot. And the thing that I number of things I took out of that 
One was just, we're all human. And to really appreciate in the people I work with a lot more about their context out of work and be open to let people talk about it, accept it, work with it, whether it's things to do with a family, with a relative, with personal health, and acknowledge that we have all this humanity side. So that was that was one thing absolutely that helped me appreciate that, you know, nobody's perfect. And I think up until that point, I really hadn't had any health issues or anything. And just, you know, it wasn't something that necessarily crossed my mind as much. So that was, that was huge. And then the, the second thing was for me, it helped me understand that I've got to, just slow down, moderate. I can't live life completely at the speed that I was at and, you know, appreciate things more, slow down. You know, a lot of people this happens to. You have a life scare, you take life more seriously. But I think what it it did do for me was even bias my travel to just try to cut my travel more very deliberately and just think more carefully about how I was spending my own time. Not that my days were numbered, I'm fine and I've been fine, but it did help me just get perspective. But I think, you know, from a leadership perspective, I I believe it just helped me be more comfortable and inquisitive about people talking about their personal lives and letting that happen. If people want to, I'm not going to push them on it, but letting them bring that to the table. And if there are issues there that are affecting them work-wise, being open to talk about what we can do about it. Thank you. Uh, And speaking of, since we have now moved more into the personal, what is important to you and how do you define and measure success in a broader term? I think for for me, one of the most important things success has been about has been helping people around me move forward um, in various ways. There's lots of different ways that people around me have moved forward. I take energy from that. There's a downside to it, too, because there are people who don't want to move forward, who can't you can't move forward sometimes peers of mine or bosses of mine who are where they are and they're not going forward. They have their agenda and they're locked into it. And that's my kryptonite Um, that I just, Oh my God, I can't believe I got to just accept that. It is hard. It kills me. And I feel like it's successful when we are, when I'm, and usually it's a we, we're making something happen and people feel they're growing from it. And usually from that, a success is where I've learned something, I've gotten something out of it by working together. It's probably why I was in client service for so long because I like helping people. I'm back now in client service after being in the CMO role. I'm doing executive advisory work. You know, to me, success is where I can make a difference for somebody. It's on a bigger and bigger scale. And look, there's no doubt I've been ambitious. It's not only, you know, in terms of 
just simply helping for helping's sake. Uh, it's been doing so on a bigger stage, on you know, for broader impact. And definitely I take energy and I'm glad I have the opportunity to do that. But it still comes down to helping people. Fabulous. So if you were, there were like two or three leadership tips that you could give to people, what are two or three summarizing this whole conversation? Yeah, I think that the number one leadership tip is ask questions. <laughs> Don't just think you've got the answers. You've got to, and you've really got to listen. Sometimes what you hear may not be the words that are said. Um, that's one of the challenges of doing a lot of things over video right now is because you miss uh, a lot of the nonverbal. You get some of it over video, but you really want to read between the lines. You want to understand the context and ask the questions that penetrate through to get to the heart of what somebody's trying to tell you. You've got to listen carefully. You can't be multitasking. Your brain can't be at a lot of different places. You got to be in that moment and you've really got to listen and understand what you're hearing, what's being asked of you. Start thinking, okay, what's the downstream implications about that's what this person is raising? What's the decision that I'm going to have to make? So that's, that's one thing is just is asking questions and listening. I guess that's two things, but um, that's that's one thing. And then I think the second thing is you're never going to get anything done unless the people around you are passionate about doing it. Uh, and so you've got to unlock their passions. They're not going to just do it for a paycheck. They're not going to just do it out of fear. And I have seen leaders who have tried to do that. And they get stuff done, but they don't get the great work. They don't get the creativity. They don't get the late hours and the momentum. So you've got to get the passion going. And that's going to be from caring, from a personal connection, from tapping into what turns other people on by exciting them with ideas. And Dino, just taking this full circle to the beginning, one of the things you said I had a, a good knack for doing was in pitch situations, stretching us. So promising just a bit more to the client than we necessarily had done before, but yet I had the confidence we could pull it off and make it happen. I was, I, I have to say, I have never been uncomfortable in a pitch with you. What, you know, like as I, when you're the junior person and you're sitting and the leader is, you know, is talking to the client, there are moments where like, wait, was he, what is he promising? We don't have that. Like I've never had I've always been like, oh, oh, that's brilliant. It, 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 that's something that, like, I remember observing it, and I'm not going to name the client on air, but in this very specific situation really early on and walking out of that pitch and like, oh, like making a mental note that that had happened to say, when I'm in that spot, that's what I'm aiming for. So, yeah. And that's motivating to the people around yeah. because it's a stretch. But we could do it and we'll be better once we do it. Yes. So let's do it. <laughs> um, and that kind of motivation, and you'll have a better sense of how you can motivate people 
if you listen to them, yes. if you're asking questions, if you understand their capability and their context, whether it's the people on your team or on the other side of the table. So those are the, the two things I think you got to keep in mind as a leader. Fabulous. Uh, shift gears one more time. So there are, this is my favorite question of the podcast because I got incredible answers out of it. So there are terms and expressions in business that are cliches and are very fashionable at times. And that inevitably, I think everybody has some that want, that makes them want to just pull their hair out. If I hear this one more time, so what are some of the cliche or business terms that drive you crazy? Yeah, so <laughs> there are a few. One is let's break it into its piece parts. That's redundant. <laughs> okay. That's just, is it pieces or parts? Um, let's just break it down. All right. That's, that's one I've just heard that just linguistically drives me crazy. Another is when somebody says to you, let's put a pin in that. I feel they're dismissing you. I feel that's an arrogant thing to do, especially the way often it is delivered. It's like, well, you just said something that I think is irrelevant. Let's put a pin in that, you know, which almost seems like you're puncturing a balloon and deflating it. I, I just, that just rarely goes over well when I hear it. And then another is, well, if we incent. Um, and incentive is an incentive is a noun. Um, I think incent may be a verb, but it's used in a way that to me, I, I'd rather have what's going to motivate someone, what is going to be their incentive. Incent just feels like what I try to do to get my labradoodles out the door. Um, so it, it just sounds, I, I don't know, <laughs> too Pavlovian. So it's just not something I, I feel comfortable with when, when I hear that. It just doesn't sound human to me. Good. And then final question. I, I always like to close the podcast with, I call it fool for the body or food for the soul. So you, you get to pick, uh, if you want to share a recipe or a drink that you really love, or if you want to go for the soul and tell us like a book or piece of music, piece of art, whatever, like really invigorates you. Well, for me, what, what really invigorates me is music. I've been a passionate music devotee all of my life. I take saxophone lessons right now, very seriously, actually taking it. I, I've been for a few years now. And so you know, in general, it's around if there's a particular song or a particular piece of music, I think it depends on my mood. You know, on one side, my mood could be if I really want to calm down and mellow out and be contemplative from a jazz side, something like Round Midnight. So Coltrane and Miles Davis and that uh, on that side. But if I want to kind of push my brain and get more really interested in how someone could experiment and be creative, Station to Station by David Bowie. So, you know, especially the live version, 11 minutes of mind-blowing stuff. From stage. Yeah, from stage. That's one of my favorite pieces of music, too. Yeah, yeah. Blows me away every time. Incredible. 
See, another passion that we share. Well, David, thank you very much. As usual, full of insights. Um, and it was great reconnecting. Absolutely, Dino. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you liked it, please leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe, listen to some of the other episodes, tell a friend, talk about the show on social media. If you like music, stick around because those who listen to the show know I have a tradition. At the end of every episode, after the credits, I play a song by my wife, Susan Catania, who is one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. David Edelman can be found on LinkedIn. Um, his URL is linkedin.com backslash in backslash Dave Edelman, spelled D-A-V-E-E-D-E-L-M-A-N. He's also on Twitter at David Edelman this time. Um, and I believe Dave is consulting right now and selectively taking marketing clients. So if you have a big marketing problem that can be solved, it could be a good idea to reach out to him. I can be found online at al4ep.com and that's spelled A-L, the number four, ep.com. And I can also be found via email at dinoal4ep.com. The episode was recorded, produced, edited, and mixed by me, Dino Cattaneo. Uh, the theme music was written, composed, and produced by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played drums, with guitar by Tony Savarino and bass by Jesse Williams. All right, time for some music. I'm going to keep it with Dave's theme of energy, and I'm going to play you a song from Susan's first album, actually the song that opens the album, and it's called Wrecking Ball. Enjoy. Brick by brick, you built this house of love on nothing but lies. Holes in the walls, cracks in my heart, and nothing inside. 